This program was recorded with a live audience. Please forgive the occasional sound fluctuations. The wild geese do not intend to cast their reflection. The water has no mind to receive their image. If I could sing or play an instrument for you, I would sing and play an instrument for you. If I could dance for you, I would dance for you. If I could paint for you, I would paint for you. But my thing is words. Words. But the problem about words is that you may listen to them. And that would be a mistake. For all I am doing is painting with words. And the message that is being sent is nonverbal. Anything you write down in a notebook, take home to think about, forget it. For in fact, I'm not going to say anything that you don't know already. But the perplexing problem is that you don't know you know. Chung Tzu says, the fish trap exists because of the fish. Once you've gotten the fish, you can forget the trap. The rabbit snare exists because of the rabbit. Once you've gotten the rabbit, you can forget the snare. Words exist because of meaning. Once you've gotten the meaning, you can forget the words. Where can I find a man who has forgotten words so I can have a word with him? You don't have to try. You don't even have to listen. We just have to be together. And it'll all happen. It will all happen. Now, what I've just said thus far is almost heresy. For in a very uh, obvious manner of speaking, especially since this is named after Dr. Hebb, whose research was in the human brain, we are in a temple dedicated to the worship of the rational mind. Even though God said, Thou shalt take no other God but me, we did it anyway. And professors are the high priests. And here in this temple, I am saying to you that what you are seeking that is bringing you here this evening, you will not find through your rational thought processes. It's as simple as that. St. John of the Cross said, All that the imagination can imagine and the reason can conceive and understand in this life is not and cannot be a proximate means of union with God. Just won't make it. Hafiz, the poet, said, O thou who are trying to learn the marvel of love from the copybook of reason, I am very much afraid you will never really see the point. The marvel of love from the copybook of reason. We are sharing a journey at this point. What draws us together is that for the most part we are Westerners who have experienced a set of shared experiences and who are at this point 
asking of themselves and that which is around them some shared questions. And it's only at the point that you ask the question that you can hear the answer. It is only at the point when it begins to dawn on you that maybe all of the methods you had available to you thus far aren't going to be enough. All we can do at this point is to share our journeys with one another. I certainly, in no even minute sense, come before you to uh, proselytize because the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, he that teaches those that do not want to hear is performing an immoral act. And besides, they can't hear it anyway. So it's only when, in Sanskrit, they call it virag, when there is a certain amount of feeling of the falling away of worldliness, of the pull of certain things, that you're ready to hear another message. And I'm going to share with you my own experiences thus far in my journey, briefly, and try to explore some of the implications of them. As I say, the likelihood that anybody in this room will ever go my trip, wear a dress and grow a beard and uh, uh, become sexually continent and live in the Himalayas, that's just a trip. It's a groovy trip, but it's a trip, and it's unique to the fact that that's suitable for me at this moment. Each pilgrim on the path has to find his own way. However, all paths lead to the same place. And therefore, by hearing of other people's journeys, you can get clear as to where it is you're going, and you can get some of the dynamics of method, comparatively, perhaps. My story is a story of three chapters. The first chapter I can tell most briefly at this point in my life, it used to be the longest chapter. The second chapter is a little longer, and the third chapter is perhaps the pertinent one for the evening. Chapter one, um, I trained to be a social psychologist in the field of child development and personality theory. I got my PhD from Stanford, and I was a professor at Harvard. I taught at Cal and Stanford and Harvard. I came from a middle-class, upwardly mobile family. And I got my PhD primarily out of fear. And I knew when I took my doctoral exams that I didn't know, but I was very charming. to Harvard, I assumed that now that I was in one of the inner temples, I would know. And I taught hip courses, I taught Freud and human motivation, 
clinical pathology. And I went to the first faculty meeting and it, they had high tea at 3.30. <laughs> and it was very much like being in the Virginia Assembly at the uh, one of the historical landmarks in the United States. Even if they were talking about the hours that Radcliffe women had to be in bed, it all sounded like a high oratory out of a Greek amphitheater. And I was very awed by it, but as the time went on, I was there for five years, I began to see that um, we didn't know enough. Down the hall from me in one direction was Eric Erickson, another was Dave Reisman, Jerry Bruner of Cognitive Psychology, some of the people who were social scientists who supposedly knew. But it stood to reason that if we all knew, we should really be grooving. And we weren't. Life just wasn't beautiful enough. Everybody was talking about the rat race, looking drawn out in a highly competitive field. And what bothered me was I knew I didn't know. But if you look in other people's eyes to get the image of who you are, it's pretty good. And everybody kept saying, well, he's a Harvard professor, so he knows. And my mother was proud of me. <laughs> and I had collected all of the symbols of success in society, or at least a large number of them. I had a Cessna airplane and a Mercedes-Benz and a Triumph motorcycle and a bachelor apartment full of antiques, and I had groovy dinner parties with bouillabaisse and white wine. And I went skin diving in Nassau, and, you know, and I sat on important committees. But every now and then, just before I'd be going to sleep, or when I'd be in the bathtub or something, that'd be that moment when there wasn't somebody else's eyes to look into to tell me how wonderful I was. And I knew that it wasn't enough. Didn't make it. And tenure was being dangled before my nose if I merely got my, quote, publications in order. And I thought, well, I have 40 more years of this. And I think it is most likely that I would have gone along at that pace, just collecting more and more badges. But down the hall from me, I was a big empire builder. I had 40 research assistants and um, two secretaries and four offices at Harvard, and I was in four different departments. Down the hall from me, in a little closet-like room that didn't have any secretaries and nothing going, sat a man, and we became drinking buddies, and his name was Timothy Leary. And one evening, we talked about Mexico, and he said he was going to be in Mexico the next summer, and invited me to visit with him. And in a drunken moment, I said, well, why don't we fly across the north of South America, because I'm a pilot. And he said, that's a great idea. So we made a plan, and I neglected to tell him that all I had was my student license.
But I worked hard all spring, and I got my license the day before I left for Mexico. And it was a hair-raising trip, and I arrived at the Cuernavaca, where Timothy was, and he had just ingested these mushrooms, which are called Tiananoctal, or Flesh of the Gods. And he said he had seen more in nine hours than he had learned in all his years as a psychologist. And there weren't any more mushrooms around. <laughs> so we didn't go to South America. We hung out and talked about the mushrooms. And then we went back to the United States, and I was away. I was teaching at Cal as a visiting professor. And when I got back in the spring, one night on the night of a large snowstorm, I was invited over to Timothy's house. I was visiting my parents in this suburb near Timothy, about a few blocks away. And I walked a few blocks to uh, ingest psilocybin, the synthetic of the Mexican mushrooms. And after a kind of a melodramatic social scene in the kitchen over whether the dog was going to die, <laughs> it's that peculiar situation you get into when you've taken a psychedelic because the dog had been out running in the snow and was panting. And the question was, was he panting naturally or not? And how would we know? <laughs> But Tim's young son, 11 years old, came down and set us straight. <laughs> and then I went off into the living room by myself. And this is the report of that uh, few moments at that point. But now, a few hours later, I had gone off by myself to reflect upon these new feelings and senses. A deep calm pervaded my being. The rug crawled and the pictures smiled, all of which delighted me. Then I saw a figure standing about eight feet away where a moment before there had been no one. I peered into the semi-darkness and recognized none other than myself, in cap and gown and hood as a professor. It was as if that part of me, which was Harvard professor, had separated or dissociated itself from me. Well, I thought, I worked hard to get that status, but I don't really need it. So it's over there and I'm over here, so I'll give it up. So I won't get frightened. Okay. Again, I settled back into the cushions, but at that moment the figure changed. Again, I looked, leaned forward, straining to see. Ah me again. But now it was that aspect of me which was the social cosmopolite. Okay, so that goes too, I thought. Again and again the figure changed and I recognized over there all the different aspects I knew to be me. Cellist, pilot, etc. With each new presentation I again and again reassured myself that I didn't need that anyway. Then I saw the figure over there become that in me which was Richard Alpertness. That is, the basic social identity by which I had always acknowledged my existence. 
Sweat broke out on my forehead. I wasn't at all sure I could do, be, do without being Richard Alpert. Did that mean I'd have amnesia? Was that what this drug that this madman had given me was going to do? Would it be permanent? Should I call Tim? What the hell? I'll give up being Richard Alpert. I can always get a new social identity. At least I have my body. But I spoke too soon. <laughs> As I looked down at my body for reassurance, I could see nothing below the kneecaps. And slowly, now to my horror, with my eyes wide open, I saw the progressive disappearance of limbs and then torso, until all there was was the couch on which I had sat. This is usually known as a bad trip report. <laughs> a scream formed in my throat. I felt that I was dying, since there was nothing in my universe that led me to believe in life after leaving the body. Doing without professorness, or loverness, or even Richard Alpertness was okay, but I certainly needed the body. Panic mounted, adrenaline shot through my system, my mouth became dry, but along with this, a voice sounded inside, what I don't know, but inside, an intimate voice asked very quietly and rather jocularly, it seemed to me, considering how distraught I was, but who's minding the store? When I could finally focus on the question, which takes a while, hear it. I realized that though everything by which I knew myself, even my body, and thus life itself as I knew it was, was gone, still I was fully aware. Not only that, but this aware I was watching the entire drama, including the panic, with calm compassion. Instantly, with this recognition, I felt a new kind of calmness, one of a profundity never experienced before. I had just found that I, later I called it a scanning device, a point, an essence, place where I existed independent of social and physical identity. That which was I was beyond life and death. And something else, that I knew. It really knew. It was wise rather than just knowledgeable. It was the voice inside that spoke truth. I recognized it, was one with it, and felt as if my entire life of looking to the outside world for reassurance was over. Now I need only look within to that place where I knew. Fear turned into exaltation. I ran out into the snow laughing, in a moment, the house was lost from view, but it was all right, because inside, I knew. At about 5.30, I walked through the silent land, the few blocks, my heart full to overflowing with the joy of my newfound self. At my parents' home, I felt the urge to clear the walk, as any good young tribal buck might. Happily, I set about the task. Then the upstairs window flew open, and there were my parents. Come to bed, you idiot. <laughs> Nobody shovels snow in the middle of the night. Ah, there was that external voice to which I had always listened. But what did the voice inside say? It said, it's okay to shovel snow. 
and it's okay to be happy. I laughed up at them, danced a bit of a jig, and returned to shoveling. When I looked again, they had closed the window, and behind it, they too were smiling. It's known as a contact high. <laughs> now, the reason I read that to you at some length is because I want to read you one other thing of two paragraphs which is an anticipation, a foreshadowing of chapter 3. It's of a 17-year-old middle-class high school student with no particular spiritual training. Quote, I was sitting alone in a room on the first floor of my uncle's house. I seldom had any sickness, and on that day there was nothing wrong with my health, but a sudden violent fear of death overtook me. There was nothing in my state of health to account for it. I just felt I am going to die and began thinking what to do about it. It did not occur to me to consult a doctor or my elders or friends. I felt I had to solve the problem myself there and then. The shock of the fear of death drove my mind inwards and I said to myself mentally without actually forming the words, now death has come, what does it mean? What is it that is dying? This body dies, and at once I dramatize the occurrence of death. I lay with my limbs stretched out as though rigor mortis had set in, and imitated a corpse so as to give greater reality. I held my breath and kept my lips tightly closed so that no sound could escape, so that neither the word I nor any other word could be uttered. Well, then, I said to myself, this body is dead. It will be carried stiff to the burning ground and there burnt and reduced to ashes. But with the death of the body, am I dead? Is the body I? It is silent and inert, but I feel the full force of my personality and even the voice of the I within me apart from it, apart from the personality. So I am spirit transcending the body. The body dies, but the spirit that transcends it cannot be touched by death. That means that I am the deathless spirit. All this was not dull thought. It flashed through me vividly as living truth, which I perceived directly, almost without thought process. I was something very real, the only real thing about my present state, and all the conscious activity connected with my body was centered on that I. From that moment onward, the I or self focused attention on itself by a powerful fascination. Fear of death had vanished once and for all. Absorption in the self continued unbroken from that time on. Previous to that crisis, I had no clear perception of this and was not consciously attracted to it. I felt no perceptible or direct interest in it, much less any desire to dwell permanently in it. Three weeks after this experience, the fellow whose report I just read dropped out. He left home and he went to a mountain where for 50 years he remained teaching and guiding all seekers with extraordinary spiritual wisdom. His name was Ramana Maharshi. He was one of the greatest saints that India has known. Now the difference between Ramana Maharshi and me was that I came down. I had an experience on Saturday night, and I assured myself, I have just touched living truth, I will know this forever, and by Wednesday I was speaking of it in the past tense. 
talking about this great experience I had. That experience starts chapter 2. For chapter 2 was my own quest via the method of psychedelics to, I guess you'd say, stay high. There was a lot of uh, political, social uh, activity connected with the psychedelics, which I'm sure you've all heard or read about at one point or another in various sundry scientific journals, such as Saturday Evening Post or (laughs) like that. And in the course of these explorations, I was fired from Harvard. I lost all my jobs, and my parents mourned me as if I were dead. But it didn't matter, because I had touched something that was so powerful that it compelled me to go on with it. I was addicted to the experience of being high. I was not addicted to the chemical, but just to the state. I had touched something so pure and so fulfilling that I had to keep going back. And I tried every method I knew to stay high. Everybody that came along with something that looked reasonably safe to ingest, I opened my mouth. I discriminated what I put in by who was giving it to me, of course. One point, a man walked into an apartment I was visiting in New York, and he was so paranoid that when he heard a news reporter was in the living room, he hid in the bathroom until the man left. And then he came out, and he was wearing cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, and he was quite strange-looking. And he started pulling bottles out of all of his pockets, saying he thought our work was great, and he wanted to give us so many grams of this and so many grams of that. And he had animal laboratories and had access to all this. Then he put out this bottle and he said, this is, um, this is an LSD, that a new kind that keeps you permanently high. And he put it on the table. And we all silently looked at it. <laughs> and then the question arose, how does he know? And if he is what that is, I don't want it. (laughs) Christ has a beautiful parable to describe those days. And when the king came in to behold the guests, he saw there a man who had not on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in thither not having on a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be much weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's what would happen. You could force your way in through the door into the wedding feast, but you couldn't stay there. And I kept figuring that if we could change the chemistry, we could, and then that didn't seem to be working. And then I understood that it had something to do with what I was saying a few years back, getting straight. You had to get straight. But I didn't really understand what that meant. The extent of the chemical experiments was at one point five of us locked ourselves in a room in a house for three weeks, and we took uh, 400 micrograms of LSD every four hours for three weeks. 
And uh, at the end of the three weeks, we came down. Well, this chapter had gone from 1961 till the beginning of 1967. At this point, I had to acknowledge the fact that I didn't know still. I now knew what it was that I was reaching for. I understood the possibility, but I didn't know how to get there. It wasn't that I didn't have supplies to work with, but what's the sense in taking them? Because I knew the trip. I had programmed and designed studies. I had taken a thousand micrograms of LSD standing in the ocean at midnight in the, in the Mexican, you know, with the jungle behind me and the ocean in front of me to get in tune with the forces of nature and scare the hell out of myself. <laughs> and at this point, I was going around as a lecturer talking about psychedelics. And there was no doubt that they were important and that they were showing us a possibility, but they weren't a full method, or at least we didn't know how to use them. Now, at this point, a friend of mine came along, a fellow who I had uh, guided through his first psychedelic experiences. He was an unusual fellow. He was um, about 14 and a half. He had gone to the University of Chicago at a 20. He had to wait till he was 21 to get his international law degree. At uh, 23 or 4, he was teaching in the United Nations. At 27 or 8, he started his own company, which he sold when he was 34 to uh, Xerox. For, and he became an executive, and he retired after a year and took his $5 million to become a Buddhist. It's happening faster and faster these days. And he wanted to go in search of holy men in the East. We had suspected along the way that the East, of course, was doing all of the work that we were just touching, and they knew all about these things. But many of my friends had gone to India, and they had come back saying there are many good pundits, that is, knowledgeable people, but there is nobody that seems to really know. And the frightening thought occurred, what happens if we are the people that know most in the world at this moment? That's pretty scary, because we don't know. And you certainly, there's a paternalistic thing, you know, you want somebody to know, somebody wise to be sitting there, you know, that knows. And I was kind of discouraged, because I didn't think I was going to find anything, but I didn't know what else to do. I had blown it in psychology, I had used up my psychedelic chemical possibilities as far as I could think of them. So I went off to India. We started in Iran and went looking for Sufis and then through Afghanistan and then... And we went on a first-class Western trip. We had a big Land Rover with a camper, a candy-striped camper top on it, bottled water and canned sardines, soft beds up in the uh, back of the car. We saw the mass of India through the windows of the Land Rover. We scored great hashish in Afghanistan, and so it was all seen through a kind of a fog of hashish. We went and we had the had darshan of the Dalai Lama, and we went to the Burning Ghats, and we went to Delhi, and we went to where Buddha delivered his first sermon, and we did the whole trip. And I took 1,300 slides, and I collected groovy musical instruments, and I had many tapes of great music, but nothing had happened at all. 
And I had this bottle of LSD, and it, when I'd find what seemed like holy men, I would give them an LSD, and I'd, they'd talk, we'd talk about it, and they'd say, well, I'd like to try it, and I'd say, well, it just so happens. I'm... <laughs> and I thought maybe they'd tell me what it was. And some of them said, uh, it gave me a headache. One old Theravadan monk, Buddhist monk. One fellow said, uh, it's good, but not as good as meditation. One fellow said, um, where can I get some more? <laughs> In general, most of the messages were messages I had received before, and I did not feel that any great light had been shed at that point. And I got to uh, Kathmandu, Nepal, and we were about to go on to Japan. And I started to experience very deep despair because that was sort of like the beginning of the journey home and I didn't see any reason to go back. What was I going back to? I had used up everything. I had nothing new to say. I didn't know. I didn't know enough. And I was sitting in the a hippie restaurant called the Blue Tibetan with my friend, my traveling companion. I was sitting with some French hippies And in walked this very extraordinary looking young fellow. He was six foot seven, and he had long blonde hair and blonde beard. He was barefoot, wearing white cloth, beads. Very uh, powerful being, and he came right to our table and sat down. And within about two minutes, I sensed that this fellow knew. It's interesting how when you are in the businesses I've been in, you are constantly checking out people's eyes. And I would look into their eyes and they would always be looking at me like, do you know? And I'd be saying, no, do you know? And I was like, no. <laughs> And there was just a feeling in this fellow that like a rock, like whatever it was, he knew it. And we took him back to the hotel, and we had about a five-day seminar in the hotel room on uh, hot baths and peach melbas, and we had a sculptor, an Indian sculptor, a beautiful fellow with us, the four of us, and mescaline and hashish and Alexander David Neal books and Arthur Avedon books and all of our levels. And at the end of about four or five days, it was still quite obvious to me that he knew. And the time came to go on to Japan with my friend who I'd been traveling with or continue to hang out with this guy. And this guy had no money. And I had no money. And I was a little queasy about what was going on. What were my motives? What was this all about? Was it pure enough? And so on. But for a variety of reasons, which I won't belabor at this moment, I decided to go with him. And we started this pilgrimage by foot. Now I am barefoot and um, experiencing extraordinary breakdown of my physical being. <laughs> a dysentery, uh, sleeping on the ground and on wooden tables so that all my hips are all black and blue and aching and my feet have blisters on them and I'm exhausted because all day long I'm walking behind him trying to avoid walking in cow dung and, and pond juice and people spit and I came from a very um, 
well toilet trained background, and this was. <laughs> and he was very compassionate, although not having much pity. And he'd say, Well, why don't you fast for a few days? You'll feel better. Your body will develop the bacteria. It's cool. And he started to train me in a most unusual way. I would say to him, um, did I ever tell you the time I was in Mexico flying? And he'd say, don't think about the past. Just be here now. Okay. How long do you suppose we're going to be on this trip? Don't think about the future. Just be here now. said, if you can be here now, when then is now, you will have super consciousness and super energy and you'll know just what to do. I'd say, boy, do I feel crummy. He'd say, emotions are like waves. Watch them disappear into the distance. I had nothing left to talk about. So I was silent, so then we were silent, and all we did was sing holy songs and have minimal communication about eat this, sleep there, you do this breathing exercise this way. And he was teaching me stuff all along the way and sort of cooling me out. And we visited a variety of temples and had extraordinary experiences along the way, which are other chapters of the book, which we need to again do on this trip. After about three months, and I was going through a lot of mixed feelings because after all, here I had come to India, I was a, an ex-professor, I was 35 years old, and I end up following around a 23-year-old guy from Laguna Beach. <laughs> Whoever wrote the script clearly had a sense of humor. There was no doubt <laughs> At the end of about three months, or a few months, uh, we had visa problems and we went to get our visas straight and uh, we got to the small town where his visa papers were and everywhere we went he was welcomed by all the religious people with open arms. If we went to a, a Theravadan Buddhist monastery he would be chanting Buddhist uh, chants and they'd all welcome him and suddenly I realized he was one of them. So I figured, aha, he's a Theravadan Buddhist. We'd meet a a Kajipal Lama from Tibet, and he would, they'd be talking chants of Tibet, and I would say, aha, he's a Kajipal Lama. We'd meet Shaivites, and he'd be in thick with them, and, and I couldn't figure out what his trip was. He was everything. And um, I was pretty confused. I generally thought we were Buddhists. <laughs> It seemed relatively clean and antiseptic, and, <laughs> and the Hindu trip seemed very, um, their pictures were such, so garish, and so the whole thing was kind of gauche, I thought. <sighs> so he says, um, he says, you stay here, I'm going out to see about my papers. So I sit, and I'm like a little child, you see, he tells me what to eat, where to sleep. He speaks Hindi and I don't very well. I just understand a little of it. And he, so it's natural that he would sort of run things, but also everything he's running. That's cool. 
During that night, I went out under the stars to uh, go to the bathroom. And while I was under the stars, I looked up at the heavens, which seemed particularly close, since there was no electricity in that tent. And I thought about my mother, who had died the previous January in Boston at the Peter Bent Brigham Hospital from a spleen. Her spleen had taken over, her bone marrow had stopped producing blood, and her spleen grew very large, and they took it out, and she died. And I wasn't thinking about how she died, I just was thinking about her because I had been with her during the period of her dying, and we had ex experienced a very high state, quite independent of our relation as parent and child or in bodies, and I had never felt any loss when she died, which quite amazed me. Even though as a psychologist I was saying, no grief reaction, watch it. <laughs> And I thought about her, and I just thought about how close I felt to her, and then I went back to bed. I said nothing about this. And the next day, he said, um, we're going to get the Land Rover and go up into the mountains, because I have to go see my guru. And he had never mentioned even having a guru. I had a very funny feeling about gurus, that it was a hustle, and that maybe he meant a high teacher. And I assumed it would be somebody Buddhist, but you didn't call them gurus usually, and the whole thing was confusing. And furthermore, the Land Rover I hated now, and it hadn't been left in, for me anyway, it had been left with a sculptor, and I, I knew if we borrowed it, it would be my responsibility, and I didn't want the responsibility, and I was sort of sulking, and I was sort of hungover from all the hashish I had smoked, which I now was finished smoking. We got the Land Rover, which he made us take, and uh, I, he wouldn't let me drive. And I was just sitting sulking in the front seat. And we went up into the mountains about 100 miles, and we came to a little temple by the side of the road. And he stopped, and I could tell something big was going to happen, because he was crying all the way up. Singing and crying and coming on. And I was very angry. And I thought, oh, all this is is a young 23-year-old kid. He just wants to have a big Land Rover. <laughs> and I'm going back to America. You know, I've had enough of this. We stop and they, the car is surrounded and he says, uh, where is Maharaji? means great king. And they say he's up on the hill and he goes running off up the hill and I, everybody's sort of ignoring me. And I'm following him stumbling between, behind this six foot seven giant, you know, and he's crying and running and I'm stumbling and I'm angry and bugged and I don't want to do this. And we walk around a hill so that we're out of sight of the road. And we come into a, a hillside with a valley behind it, a beautiful scene. And there is sitting a little old man with a blanket, and he's surrounded by about eight or nine Indians. And this tall fellow is stretched out flat in what's called Dunder Pranam, with his hands touching the feet of this man. And he's crying, and the man's patting his head and smiling. And I take a look at this scene, and it's quite beautiful, but I'm too bugged to really appreciate it. 
and I think, well, I'm not going to touch his feet. I mean, you know, I, we don't do that in the West. So I sort of stood back, figuring, well, I can just be an observer. I'm just a passenger in the car. I don't have to do it. After a little while, um, this old man pulled his hair and he said to him, uh, have you got a picture of me? And the, man, the boy said, yeah. And he said, well, give it to him. So I thought, gee, that's very nice, you know. This little old man's going to give me a picture of himself. <laughs> and I smiled. Thank you very much, you know. See, there was a, a guy who would translate. The school principal was one of the eight people. And he would sort of say everything in English after it was said. Then he looked up at me, and I was still like very uptight. He looked up at me and he said, uh, you came in a big car? Like the one topic, see, that I'm uptight about. So I said, yeah. He said, you'll give it to me? So I started to say, well, and this young fellow said, Maharaji, if you want it, it's yours. And I said, now, wait a minute. You can't go giving away David's car. It's not our car to give away. This little old man says to me, you made much money in America? So I said, uh, yeah, one time I made. He said, how much did you make? So I was like into bragging. My, you know, I needed something for my ego. I said, well, one year I made $25,000. So they all figured that out in rupees, and everybody was impressed. It's like 60 billion rupees or something like that. <laughs> so he said, you'll buy a car like that for me? Now, I grew up in a family that was very involved with Jewish charities, and I knew about uh, getting money, but I had never been hustled so fast in my life. <laughs> I didn't even know who he was, and he was already asking me for a $7,000 car. And he's smiling at me all the time. He's putting me on. That's really what it boils down to. So I say, well, perhaps. And then he says, Take them away, give them food. And we're taken off and given food. Big sumptuous feast. The end of the feast, we rest, and then we're brought back to him. And he says, uh, come sit, sit. So I go and sit down. He said, um, you were out under the stars last night. You were thinking about your mother. Yeah. She died last year. Mm. Closed his eyes for a second. And he said, she got very big in the stomach before she died. Said, yeah. He says, um, spleen. She died of spleen. When he said that, two things happened to me. One was that my mind raced faster and faster and faster through every conceivable CIA super paranoia I could conceive of <laughs> to figure out what was happening to me. 
I mean, who was putting me on? Like, had they brought me here? Was this some monstrous training program? That, and I, a dossier was spread behind this little man. He pushed a button and the, you know, the ground opened up. And I mean, like, that's very far out because even the guy I was traveling with didn't know that stuff. And I was just a passenger in the car. You know, boy, they're really good at big game. And I went through, like, how, what are the probabilities, you see? Because, see, I, in the past, I was in this position that when things like this happened, they didn't happen to me usually, they happened to somebody else, and I said, well, that's nice. We certainly have to keep an open mind about those things. And, <laughs> and when it did happen to me, I was always out of my head on psychedelics, and I, how did I know it had happened, and I hadn't just created the whole thing out of whole cloth? Because I had taken some psychedelics that did that kind of thing. I had taken, I remember uh, taking a thing called JB318. And uh, I was sitting in a, in a room and nothing was happening. And I thought, gee, this nothing as much happens with this drug, does it? Even though the fellow I took it with, who was about 50, was doing cartwheels through the room. <laughs> but I felt nothing. And then this girl from the community I was living in walked in and she said, um, would you like some lemonade? And I said, that would be great. And she poured this glass of lemonade and it got to the top and she kept pouring and it went over the side and down the side and across the wall and up the wall and across the ceiling <laughs> and down and under my pants. And then it went back up and my pants got wet and I moved and then it went back up and as it touched the glass, the glass disappeared and the girl disappeared and the, my wet pants were no longer wet. And I turned to Ralph Metzner, who was sitting next to me, and I said, Ralph, you know, the most unusual thing just happened to me. And Ralph disappeared. <laughs> and thus, the uh, I was perfectly willing when the people at Harvard said, you people have been... Uh, Taking these drugs, you are therefore not reputable scientists anymore as observers. And I was perfectly delighted to say, I will be data. <laughs> you know, study me, and it may be it's too bad what happened to those guys in the 60s at Harvard. You know. So my mind went faster and faster and faster, and then it went through every desperate ploy and, and search through all the storage units. And then, just like a computer that has been fed an insoluble problem, finally, so the machine doesn't burn out entirely, a red light goes on and a bell rings and the machine stops. And that is what happened. My mind just gave up. And simultaneously, and this was not, I couldn't experience it as cause and effect. All I experienced it was the simultaneity. But he was looking right at me and sort of uh, just looking right at me. I felt this very violent tugging sensation in my chest. It was very painful. And uh, I started to cry. And I cried, and I cried, and I cried. And I wasn't happy, and I wasn't sad. The closest I can come to description of feelings was like, I'm home, or it's over, or whew, or it's all right, or wow, that kind of thing. Cried and cried and cried, and they took me away. 
And I was taken to a temple about 12 miles away, and I was given a nice room, and I was sitting in the room, and during the evening I was very confused, and at one point I was going through my shoulder bag, and I came to uh, the bottle of LSD. I thought, this guy is going to know what LSD is, because he knows everything. I'll have to ask him. Next morning at 8 o'clock, messenger comes, Maharaji wants to see you. We go over the 12 miles to the temple. I'm just approaching him about five, six yards away from him, and he yells out, have you got a question? And I take one look at him, and all I want to do is touch his feet. <laughs> I don't have any question. It's so warm and beautiful, and there's so much light coming out of him. And I say, no, I don't have any question. And he says, he gets very impatient, and he says, um, where's the medicine? Medicine? So, Guru Brother says, well, maybe he means the LSD. I said, LSD? Acha, the LSD. Bring the LSD. So I go and I bring the bottle of LSD. He holds, I hold up my hand, he wants to see. So I hold up my hand and pour it in. He says, well, what's that? I said, well, that's LSD. And what's that? That's STP and that's Librium. That's Tuanol and, you know, it's a, my traveling kit. <laughs> In those days, I hasten to add for the benefit of the people whose business it is to protect us from those kind of traveling kids. And he says, does it give you siddhis? And I didn't know what the word siddhis meant. And I said, siddhis, and it was translated as powers to me. And I didn't realize it was spiritual powers. I thought he was asking for physical power. I thought he wanted something like vitamin B12. And I didn't have any thing like that, and I was really depressed, because I really wanted to give him whatever he wanted. I mean, I would have given him anything at that point. He could have the Land Rover if he wanted. <sighs> so I said, gee, I'm sorry, I don't have that, and I poured it back into the bottle, and I was very sad. No, oh, no, no, and he holds out his hand. So I put one pill in his hand, and these are, uh, these are called white lightning, and they were uh, about 275 micrograms of LSD, but these were a special batch that had been made for me as a going away present, and they were each 305 micrograms. I, he looked and he, come on, come on. So I put a second on his hand, that was 610 micrograms. For a 70 year old man, you usually, you know, like 150 under suitable conditions, and can't be too careful with it. Never know about the heart. And, and he looks and he says, come on, come on. So I put a third one, that's 915, that's going to do it. I mean, it's good at LSD. And he, uh, acha, and he downs the whole business. And the scientist in me says, uh, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> and all day I hung around every now and then he'd twinkle at me. And of course nothing happened at all. So that was the answer to that question. He continued to manifest these, what we in the West call miracles. Certainly the capacity to uh, know everything I was thinking at all times. And lest ye see wonders and miracles, ye will not believe, and that certainly was helping. 
but it was only a, a more trivial part of the whole undertaking it turned I never left the temple I just stayed there they took me over they didn't ask me if I wanted to stay there were no contracts no promises no anything they just bought my clothes and put me in a room and, and I met this man who then became my teacher who was a disciple of the gurus no place to hide my teacher had gone into the jungle when he was eight years old Fifteen years ago, he had met the guru in the jungle. They were both called jungle sadhus. That is, they lived in caves way back in the forest. They didn't have any commerce with people. And they, he was a very pure Brahmin, the teacher. He weighs about 90 pounds. He's very tiny. He's a very unusual fellow. He's got his jetta piled high. His hair goes all the way down to his ankles. But it's all kept piled on his head. He moves incredibly fast. He's always rushing around. He has architecturally designed. See, what happens is this guru, who is just this little old man in a blanket, he just hangs out, see? And he sort of just hangs out. He doesn't do anything except just talk to people and people feed him. And he just does his thing in a very subtle way. And, every, and, and they, the, the devotees like having him around so much because he's so high that they sort of guard him. <laughs> because if they let him go, he'd sort of walk off and maybe nobody would see him again. And they have a car for him and he just keeps disappearing here and there with a car and goes different places. And everywhere he goes, people rush up to touch his feet and be around him. So. And then all these people bring him money and gifts and stuff and he doesn't have any use for that. He's got no game going. So then these people who bring him the gifts, they set up foundations to take care of the gifts. And then they say to him, Maharaji, what shall we do? And he comes and he points to a place and says, love a temple, because a great saint had lived in that cave, we'll build a temple in the cave. And this teacher designs all of them, he architecturally designs them, supervised the building, ran the temples and the schools and the whole business. He taught me, he reads and writes, he's silent, he's been silent for 15 years. He reads and writes six or eight languages. He has many followers of his own. His food intake for 15 years, and I lived with him and I saw what he was taking, his food intake for 15 years was two glasses of milk a day. That's it. He is a scrupulously honest, perfect guy. He is not, uh, you wouldn't consider him a realized being. He's caught in what's called the golden chain, the sattvic chain, the chain of being pure. He's being good. And he taught me, he taught me everything, and he taught me so subtly. He taught me so subtly that I never knew I was being taught anything. He would walk in and I, into my room where I was alone most of the time. I ate alone, I lived alone, and I was left very much with my thoughts right on the edge of freaking out all the time. He walk in and he write on the slate, if you wear shoe leather, the whole earth is covered with leather. And then he'd walk out. Then if you hadn't gotten that message, he felt you hadn't gotten that message, he'd send you another one. He'd say, if a pickpocket meets a saint, he'd write, he sees only his pockets, then he'd leave for the day. And it was only later that I realized that he had taught me 
a very, very exquisitely articulated system that is um, several thousand years old at least, which is called uh, Patanjali's system of Ashtanga Yoga, or Eight-Limbed Yoga. It's also sometimes known as Raja Yoga. Because I never thought he was teaching me anything. I thought we were just hanging out and he was saying these like groovy things on his chalkboard. <laughs> and he never gave me the feeling that he was saying anything to me that was new. It was all, sure, of course, you know, right, that's the way it is. The yoga consists of eight limbs. First two limbs are purification. The third limb concerns the body, asanas, which you sometimes know of as hatha yoga. The fourth limb concerns pranayama, or control of pran, or life force, or energy, through breath control. And the fifth through the eighth concern methods of controlling the mind. And all I can say to you is, as a reasonably competent social scientist, I have never yet seen such an exquisitely articulated system as that. And furthermore, I would say to you that it works. The schedule, the life I led in the temple, very simply, was I'd get up around 4.30 in the morning, I would go to the river to take my bath, with a lota pouring water over me, barefoot through the snow, rush back to the huddle by my coal brazier, do breath pranayam, do asanas, do meditation, take tea in the morning, meditate in the morning and read holy books. He would come and teach me around 11, then I would do more asanas, breathing, then I would take my meal for the day alone, then I would rest and have fantasies of being somewhere else like on the Riviera, lying in the sun with a beautiful girl feeding me grapes. And then I would uh, study some more, or read, or write, and then people would come, we'd sing holy songs, and then I would do breathing again, and then asanas again, and then meditation, and I'd take some warm milk, and I'd go to bed. And every now and then I'd be invited to go see Maharaji, the guru. And my life was, had that sameness about it, very simple, very austere. Very delightful, very content, content. Now, I'm going to explain to you uh, exactly what it is I now think. I'm going to talk to you from within this system. I'm going to explain to you how it all is. I'm going to remind you that there is a place in you that already knows everything I'm going to say, as you'll understand in a minute. What the teacher wrote on the slate, the first thing he wrote was, desire is a trap, desirelessness is moksha or liberation, desire is the creator, desire is the destroyer, desire is the universe. Desire is a trap, desirelessness is moksha or liberation. Desire is the creator, desire is the destroyer, desire is the universe. You recall Buddha's Four Noble Truths? Buddha went and sat under the, the Bodhi tree in Budgaya for seven days, and he saw how it all was, and then he came back to teach. And he said, who will I teach? And he thought, well, gee, I'll lay it on the guys I used to hang out with when I was doing austerities. 
And they were at Sarnath at the Deer Park, and he went there, and they were all bugged with him because he was no longer doing austerities, because he wasn't being pure like they were. And so when he came along, they said, let's ignore him, because he's not on the trip anymore. But he came up, and he was all shiny, and light was coming out of him. And so they found themselves, in spite of themselves, honoring him. And he sat down, and he said, uh, they said, we're not going to listen to you, though, because you don't do the thing anymore. He says, well, I'm enlightened now. And they said, yeah, but you don't do the thing. He said, but I never before told you I was enlightened, and now I'm telling you I'm enlightened. And I'm going to tell you how it is. And then he proceeded to lay on them how it is with four truths. Truth number one, all life is suffering. That's a hard one. What does that mean? Birth involves suffering. Death involves suffering. Sickness involves suffering. Old age involves suffering. Not getting what you want involves suffering. Getting what you don't want involves suffering. And he says, even getting what you want involves suffering because it's in time and it's going to pass away. Say you want to be the playmate of the month, you become the playmate of the month, and next month you're not the playmate of the month anymore. Lay not up treasures where moth and rust doth corrupt, was Christ's way of saying it. Problem is, if it's in time, you're going to lose it. So even getting what you want has an element. It's like riding a wave on surfing. The wave's going to end, even in endless summer. His second noble truth was the cause of suffering is craving or desire. If you didn't crave life, you wouldn't fear death. You wouldn't suffer. If you don't crave something, you can't suffer about it. Third noble truth is if you give up craving, you end suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path or the means of giving up craving. Giving up craving, giving up desire. And now my teacher, who is a Hindu, is saying to me, desire is a trap, desirelessness is liberation. Desirelessness is liberation. What does all that mean? What it means is extricating oneself from attachment. It means, quote, renunciation. And what does renunciation mean? To us Westerners, it means a guy like Milarepa sitting in a cave where he's been eating green nettles and he's covered with nettle fur and he looks like a bag of bones and, and you've got to give up everything. Well, it has nothing necessarily to do with that at all. Because what is required on this trip is renunciation of attachment. Renunciation of attachment. Dropping out, not in the external sense, but in the internal sense. It doesn't matter what the external trip is. Any one of them will do. It's the internal process that changes. Now, how do you do that, and what is that about? And how can I tell you how Maharaji reads my mind? Take this meditation. Remember I read you that thing about the 17-year-old Ramana Maharshi? Ramana Maharshi is, does Gyan Yoga, the yoga of the mind beating out the mind. It's like Zen. And he says, do the following. And he says, just do it relentlessly. Sit down and follow the method of vichara atma, the method of self-inquiry. 
sit down, you say, who am I? And then you say I until you have I placed in the middle of your head and you can hear it in there in the middle of your head, I, 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 I. I'll just take you quickly through it. We won't do it at this moment. You say, I am not this body. And then you experience your torso as object and I as subject, I in the middle of your head. Then you say, I am not my five organs of motion. Then you experience your arms as object, your tongue as object, your legs as object, your anal sphincter as object, your genitals as object. With the eye in the middle of the head as subject. You note them all. You note your arm doing its thing. You note it. Then you say, I am not my five senses. Now, you've all been in the situation where you're in a room where a clock is ticking, and you start to read something, and you get so involved in what you're reading, you don't hear the clock tick. And then you finish reading, and suddenly the clock is ticking again. Well, that's an involuntary example. You see, the clock continued to tick, your ear continued to hear the clock tick, but you were no longer attending to your ear hearing the clock tick. So at this point, you don't turn it off, you just note your ear hearing, your eye seeing, your nose smelling, your tongue tasting, your skin feeling. Then you say, I am not my five internal organs, and you go through respiration and breath, and you digestion and excretion and perspiration and, uh, and circulation. Each of them, you either fantasy it or experience it as object. And then you come to the stinker, the clincher, the powerful one, the key to the whole thing. When you've done all that, and it may take you months to get to that place, then you say, I am not this thought. The th what thought? The thought of I. I am not that thought. And you begin to see your thoughts as if you were looking at a ticker tape news thing going by you. I am not this thought. What thought am I not? The thought of I. Here I am. Where's here I am? Here I am is over there. Where am I? Where am I? And if you can play this one out, at that point, you have gone behind your senses and behind your thinking mind. And you pass through a doorway. And you enter into another state of consciousness. And another state of consciousness is discontinuous with your normal waking state of consciousness. William James, the philosopher, said, our normal consciousness our normal waking consciousness is but one special type of consciousness. Whilst all about it, parted from it by the filmiest of screens, there lie other types of consciousness quite different, each having its own field of application and adaptation. No account of the universe in its totality is complete, which fails to take into account these other types of mentality. But how to consider them is the question for they are so discontinuous with our normal waking state of consciousness." And so on. 
and you go through a doorway at that point into another state of consciousness. Now, if you are able to do that, where is it you go to? You go into a thing which is called samadhi, that's one name for it. You go into a low level of samadhi, and there are eight or nine stages of this. Keep that in mind for a moment, and let me introduce another metaphor to you, a metaphor in the Western framework. Think of a solid object, mass, as a pattern of energy. We know that. We're hip, sophisticated people. We know that. We know that though this, uh, this seems solid, it is, in fact, a pattern of slowed-down light. It just seems solid to our particular sense receptors. Now imagine, if this, is a, if this is a pattern of energy, then light is also a pattern of energy, sound is a pattern of energy, thought is a pattern of energy. And what then is energy? And you get into a finer and finer form of energy because behind that one there's another one, and behind that one there's another one, and behind that one is another one. And you finally get down to the state of energy that is so fine it is no longer unique. It's no longer unique. That is, if you think of an atom as having electrons and neutrons and so on, protons, even the electron, which has a uniqueness to it, is made up of some of these, a pattern of these finer things. And the quality of these finer things is that they are every, anything you can label, call it vacuum, call it space, call it ashtray, call it... Uh, Call it thought, call it emotions, call it Mars. It's all this made up of this same thing. Are you with me? Do you get the image? If you are now aware that every, behind everything there is this very fine energy and it's all interchangeable and it's constantly moving in and out of everything, you begin to understand that we are, we are a solid. This is solid. It's all solid. This is made up of that energy, this is made up of that energy, that flame is made up of that energy, tomorrow is made up of the energy, yesterday is made up of the energy. And it's all just interchanging, and it's not unique at all. Now the thing, the next statement that is worthy of some reflection is that that type of energy, which is the finest form of energy that is in the world of form, what's called Prakriti, or many names, that very fine form of energy is an identity with, not equal to, but an identity with consciousness. Not self-consciousness, but consciousness. That means that when you extricate yourself from the time-space locus of this body, these thoughts, this set of senses, you, what you call me, that I that I experienced when I first took psilocybin, the Ramana Maharshi experienced when he thought he was going to die, that I that has nothing to do with this body, this personality, this whole trip. What is that? That is, and it is known in Sanskrit as Sat-Chit-Ananda. You enter into a state of Sat-Chit-Ananda, and Sat-Chit-Ananda means absolute existence, absolute knowledge, and absolute bliss. Now, that's a big one, and let me just 
clarify who you really are, because you may want to know just what it means to be God. Take Ananda. That's a groovy one to take. Bliss. You go surfing. You get to just that place on the wave where it's all perfect. You've just got the wave. You're just riding the, the place in the wave. Perfect. Yeah, right. Here we are. Wow. Oh, is that good. It's that timeless moment. You're right there. You paint a picture and you get to the place where the picture is just coming out itself and it's perfect. It's just the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. You're doing a scientific research project, and you see a relationship. Oh, wow. Yeah. You get a degree, and everybody's proud of you. Oh, yeah. You get a moment of that, mm, that thing again. That feeling for a quick second, it's all right. Yeah. Oh, mm, it's so good. The method that most Westerners are most uh, familiar with for getting to that little place is, of course, the sexual experience. Because at the moment of orgasm, you transcend, if albeit briefly for most Westerners, you transcend your ego, and it becomes merely an experience in which there happen to be four legs and four arms and two heads and movement. And you are part of an experience. And there is a moment in there when you say, yeah, well, oh, right. I'd just like to stay right at this place forever. Mm. You all know the place? It's called fulfillment. It's called contentment. It's called a feeling of well-being. It's called it's all right with the universe. It's called, yeah, it's called isness. We've got lots of names for it. It's unnameable. It's a state. It's a state of being. It has nothing to do with doing. It's a state of being. It's a moment. It's an eternal moment. It's outside of time. That place which you identify with your method of getting there. So if you're a surfer, you say, baby, all I want to do for the rest of my life is surf. And if you're a sexual gymnast, you say, oh, man, all I want to do is make out forever or whatever your particular turn-on method is to get you to that place. And when you say, you turn me on, or that scene turns me on, you mean it allows me to touch that place again. But the funny thing is that the place is inside of you. The place is not connected with your method. It's not out there. When you say you fall in love with somebody, it means that they are a stimulus which turns you on to that place. Now you've got to understand that Satchit Ananda means living in that place all the time. Okay? When I try to figure out where Maharaji, what state of consciousness he's in, I begin to understand he's in what's called Sahaja Samadhi. He is living in a state of perpetual, total, ecstatic sexual union with the entire universe at every moment. Is that enough? That's known as Ananda. Chit, which means absolute knowledge. He sits there absolutely mindless. There's not a thought in his head. 
He's not sitting around thinking, I think I'll lay on him about his mother's spleen. That'll really blow his mind. <laughs> There's no ego there at all. He's just absolutely sitting there mindless. And out of my needs comes that particular thing. And here's the extraordinary issue of what renunciation or surrender is about, because it's so beautiful. He is sitting there mindless, and out this thing comes. In other words, he has become that kind of energy, so he is my mother's spleen as well as everything else in the universe. It's all interchangeable, it's all interrelated, it is all one, it's known as the clear white light in some systems. It is a complete homogeneous field in which when you're hooked up, you're in it all. You are it all. That's what Chit is. But the point is, he doesn't know he knows. Because there's nobody around to know he knows. You hear that? You give up knowing you know to be it all. And the surrender is the surrender of the guy who knows. And the Westerner is not about ready to do that because he wants to know he knows. And what the Westerner is on is what's known as the asymptotic curve of the subtle sphere. It's a curve that never meets the place, but it sucks you in further and further and further because you almost know you know. You get very far out, you see so much, you begin to see... I had a friend, Aldous Huxley, who was in one of these places. And finally, he was down to practically one word. I mean, he had a, a beautiful command of language, but he was everything was blowing his mind all the time. And he was going around and all he'd say was, Extraordinary! <laughs> Everything he would look at, anything, extraordinary. <laughs> he was seeing how it all was, and he was gasped by seeing how it all was. But finally, you've got to give that one up, too, you see? And the problem, the thing that's so interesting is when you start to go into samadhi, the first thing you go into are these waves of bliss like you've never had before. Oh, God, it's so good. Oh, boy. And why not hang out here, man? It's pretty good. But the Vedas say, keep going, baby. Don't stop now. The problem is you've got to give up the experiencer. The experiencer of bliss is still separate from the bliss. And finally, you become the bliss. The knower is separate from the knowledge. Finally, you give up the knower to be the knowledge. The here and now is separate from he who is thinking about or experiencing the here and now, so finally you give up him. It is surrender. But the rules of the game say that you can only surrender when there is no surrender. That is, if you think you've given something up, forget it. Forget it, because you can't do it. For example, I am, I am a practicing yogi, and I love root beer. Now, root beer is not listed by the Vedas as one of the foods that yogis eat. 
And I am a beginner on the trip. I am in the first of many years of training, and I still like root beer. Now, I can sit in my meditation room, and I can look so holy, butter would melt in my mouth. I mean, I really look like Buddha himself, except all the time I'm thinking about root beer. <laughs> well, if I'm thinking about it, I might as well drink it. But every time I drink it, I strengthen the, the whole habit of drinking it. But if I don't drink it, I sit and think about it. So sometimes I'm sitting in the meditation room and I'm just sitting and I'm very zonked out. And the next moment I notice I'm at my father's refrigerator holding a bottle of root beer, drinking it. become enlightened. And they'd say, well, that's very nice. And they'd take you to a little room. You'd go into the room and they'd say, now, would you notice that when you breathe in, your abdomen goes up. And when you breathe out, your abdomen goes down. And you, yes, I noticed that. Continue to notice that. Thank you. And they leave you. Food's brought to you. Two weeks later, guy comes in. How are you doing? Doing with what? You've been watching your abdomen go up and down? Oh, I watched for you. didn't mean I was put. Thank you very much. That's the work. All right, now let's say your only assignment in life is to watch your abdomen go up and down. And every time it goes up, you think rising, and every time it goes down, you think falling. That's your job. See, like I do this every morning, right? I sit in meditation and I start out. And since I'm a high Western achiever, I count. See? And I know how hung up I am when I begin, so I know I'm going to have to do 500 to get straight today, or 1,000 to get straight today. Om, one. Om, two. Om. Om four. What an idiotic thing to be doing. Om five. Om six. Jeez, my leg hurts. Om seven. Om eight. I should have gone to the bathroom before. Om nine. Om ten. Om eleven. Do you think this works? Om 12. For this, I got a PhD. Om 13. And on and on and on. Now, what happens is, I'm just giving you the little thoughts you can flick off, see? But the really seductive ones, they really take you on the trip, you see? Like, uh, you hear, there's a noise outside, and you say, what was that? See, and that seems like a legitimate reason. And you can keep right on counting, and you're thinking about what is it, and who is it, and that leads you to that thing, and i got to get the car greased, and you're off and running, see? And then you wait, oh, wow, I was supposed to be counting to five. I'm suddenly at 93, how did I get here? See? 
Don't knock yourself, that's just more jazz, 94, 95, 96. And then pretty soon you get so that the breaks are only like about 60 instead of 100, you see, where you forgot. And you keep pushing it down and pushing it down and pushing it down. You take this most mechanical, stupid thing, see? That's exactly what you need to foil the mind, is just simplicity itself. And your game is to treat all thoughts like clouds. There is not one thought worthy of having at that during that period of time other than rising and falling, or you're counting. And after a while, when you really get good at it, you get down to a place where all there is is that place in your abdomen going up, coming down, going up, And in your head is rising, falling, rising, falling, rising, falling. But before that happens, you get to the point where you see the thousands of thoughts going by, just like clouds in the sky, just going over. But the thing is that because of your commitment, they have no leverage to hold you. While previously, every thought had as much right as every other thought to hold you. Why did you give preeminence to one over another? And it's only when you can make your mind thoroughly one-pointed, bring it down to one place. This is the first requirement of this game. First requirement of the game is to bring the mind down to one-pointed. And then the game is to work with the energies in the body and learn how to control them and move them up your spine and through your nerves and so on. And then you turn, push the energy through that one-pointedness and turn the one-pointedness back in on itself and you go through the doorway. So what the game is, is you go from many subjects and many objects to one subject and many objects to making that subject object and then it all becomes subject. You grok it all. You are one with it all. It's the root. That's the root of Gyan Yoga, the yoga of the intellect. You see, when you've been getting high lots, and you know where high is, Highville, Heliopolis, uh, you know, the place, Satchitananda, you know that it has certain qualities. One is that it is not in time. It is not in time. It's in eternal time. The other is that it's not in, there is no subject and object. No subject and object. So if you want to create the universe of high to live in, you've got to work with time and you've got to work with subject-object. I'm just giving these as clues. We won't get into that at the moment. Except to say this, that the first purification things in what I'm doing include, the first one is non-killing, non-stealing, non-lying, non-giving and receiving of gifts, and sexual continence. We, the continence one is too big a topic to play with at this moment. But let's take to the others because they all fit together. If I have anything going in my head that keeps you him, we cannot be high together. Because if we're going to be high together, we've got to be us. And as long as there is subject-object, it won't work. 
Now imagine what it is like to live in a world where everybody is us. Everybody is us. There's no them at all. There's no them at all. This is a big one. This is a very big one. This is a very big clue. It's a clue. It is a clue. Time and subject-object are two major clues to becoming a conscious being at this moment. Take sex. There are three levels at which you can have sex. There is Sam and Mary making it with each other. Your personality turns me on. An interpersonal thing. Are you happy? Was it fun? Did you enjoy it? Etc. We're having fun together. There is the yin-yang, the level of polarization of forces, the biological magnetic fields. Both of those are subject-object. Those are both what the Easterners mean by the word lust. That is, desiring something in the subject-object sense. There is a third level at which the two of us become one, and from this one place, one consciousness, and two bodies, then we perform a dance, and that dance creates the energy which we feed in to keep us as one. You hear that? That's very, very high stuff, very high stuff. Anything in you which makes you see somebody else as him or her is the reason you're not high all the time. Is the reason you are not conscious all the time. Consciousness all the time means total compassion for how it is in the universe at every moment. Compassion means total empathy with how it all is. It means grokking it just as you understand how your hand works you understand how it all is because you are it all because your ego is not getting in the way because your desires are not distorting what it's all about because you are not identified with your desires. If you are horny and walk down the street, all you see is what's makeable. If you're hungry and walk down the street, all you see is what's edible. If you're an achiever and you walk down the street, all you see is who's comp competitive with or what you can achieve on, about. Desires, motives affect perception. And we know that from social psychology. The only thing in social psychology that we don't know is that there's an out. I was teaching from a social psychology book, which was a good, respectable social psychology book just seven years ago, that said man is the sum of his social roles. It's rough karma. See, and the funny, peculiar position we're caught in is that many of us have touched a possibility and we are awake to how beautiful it is and we want it to be beautiful, but we want it so bad that our want, our desire, corrupts our efforts. That's the situation we find ourselves in. Because it is as obvious as the nose on one's face when you look at protests that the protesters create the people who just against whom they protest. That as long as you are identified in the polarity and attached at the polarized position, you create your polar opposite. If I see you as him, that 
puts into you a reaction that sees me as him, and there we are, separate. And only can I say, I disagree with you when I understand that you and I are one. And that's the basis from which I'm working. Only when you can say, yes, Richard Nixon is us, and J. Edgar Hoover is us, and, and Mao is us, and Cho Min is us, and on and on and on. And the hippie is us, and the speed freak is us, and the heroin addict is us, and the psychotic, and we can get on with it. It's a reversal of figure and ground. It's going from the position where you are completely addicted to individual differences, which is what the Western trip is, to the point where you, and I use Western trip only to mean rational materialism. It is not unique to the West, except it's the Greek-Roman trip except for some of the mystical elements in Plato and Heraclitus. And as long as you're into individual differences, you're into subject and object. And you flip it over and you see in which they are all the same. I'm driving along in New York State and a policeman stops me because I've got a very old 1938 car and it looks weird. And I've got a long beard and I look funny. And I've got a funny license plate and it's all strange and there's a stop and frisk law. And so he stops me. And he comes up and he says, license and registration, and he is being him, he's being policeman. What I am doing is doing my mantra. I'm doing a centering device, a heuristic device for keeping me centered in the place where we are one. And I hand him my license and registration, and at the same moment I am here. I am not identified with him who is handing the license and registration. This is going to be very pure, or it doesn't work, I'll tell you, by the way. I don't come on to him to look how beautiful I am, I'm a flower child, or, you know, why are you a policeman, come on, be groovy. I No, no hustle, I don't say a word. We never miss a, a step in the Leela Rasa, in the divine dance. He's doing his policeman thing, I'm doing my far out unusual person, I'm just kindly giving him my license. And he says, do you have any guns in the car? I say, no, I don't have any guns in the car. Any drugs in the car? No, I don't have any drugs in the car. What's in that? And I say, these are some mints. Would you like a mint? And all the time, I'm right here. Right here. It's a psychic place. It is not, it's a vibrational rate, by the way, I'm talking about. I am right here. And after about three minutes, he begins to dig he's in the wrong place because he's busy being a policeman. But the fact is that all of us are busy with our melodramas. We're all in Peyton Place, you see. But behind our roles in Peyton Place, which were just determined by central casting for the evening, I, you were there are a lot of parts for audience tonight. Who wants to play? Come over as audience. All right. We need one holy man left over from Christmas. Right. The end of the evening, take your bread and go home. It's all over. Great. We played our parts well. Everybody playing their part? Are you busy listening? Watch it. Don't get caught. Just because you're going to play Hamlet, don't be Hamlet. Because here we all are. All of us are right here in a place where we are noting 
him speaking and there him listening and her listening. You can be in the melodrama or you can see the melodrama going down and here we all are too, right? This is a psychic space. I'm just doing my... Inside, the funny thing is, all the time I'm talking to you, I'm not talking to you at all. I mean, it's very far out and it may, you may feel gypped. He never came that night. Watch it. Because <laughs> inside, all I'm doing is Oh, money, pet me, hung out, 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 money, pet me, which I've been doing for about a year and a half. And it's going on in my bowels, and I'm, it's like inflating a room inside me where I am. It's like a cave, it's a groovy heart cave. It's called a Hridayam, and I hang out in the cave, and I hang out with Buddha, with Christ, with Ramakrishna, with Ramana Maharshi, with anybody else that wants to come out of their melodrama and be in the cave. It's not located in time and space. And here I am, and I'm watching this whole thing go down. I'm watching him speak. So I'm with the policeman, and pretty soon he begins to sense that there is a nicer place to be than where he is. Right here. And all I can say is, as I drove away, which is very unlike state troopers, he was waving at me, saying, Goodbye, Richard, have a good trip. Because finally, we're dealing with the variables that concern just humanness. They don't concern individual differences anymore. The, the, the toughest deputy sheriff in the southern community in the United States, the meanest guy that eats nails, still wants to live in love. He wants to live in warmth. He wants to live in beauty. He wants to feel that feeling. And. What technology and what our rational materialism and what the manifestation of all of our thought has led us to believe is that through gratification of the senses and through the thinking mind, we would get to that place. But finally, we begin to realize it's not going to make it. And at that point, it starts to fall away. And then you start to go inside. And then you find out, lo and behold, in here, here we all are again. Except we're really here. We're really here. All the Westerner needs is the faith in the possibility of a higher state of consciousness to equal the faith he has had in his rational mind. And slightly greater than that in order to allow him to do the next step. Without that faith, nothing can happen. It's got to be a faith which undercuts the cynicism. The cynicism says there's nothing more than this round, baby, so take what you can get. Because when you die, you're dead. You're dead. But who, in fact, we are has nothing whatsoever to do with that. It's very much like you were in a factory in Detroit and you drove out of the factory or a factory that makes cars and you drove out of the factory and the door closed on the factory 
and you found yourself in the existential predicament, except you didn't know who you were, because everything you forgot, when the door closed, you forgot everything preceding that, so all there is is this car. And the, the gate opens and you drive on the road, and for years you drive on the road and you stop at gas stations and drive-ins and so on, and if somebody says, who are you, you say, I am a Chevrolet Corvair. And you look at fields, but you can't go there because you break your springs. And when you go by those car lots where they take cars and they make them in little steel squares, you get uptight because planned obsolescence and all. And then a voice comes along and says, uh, hey, buddy, did you ever see that? You say, what's that? It's a door handle. What's that? Well, that's to get out of the car. What do you mean, get out of the car? Ooh, I am a Chevrolet Corvair. Come on now, what are you doing putting me on? No, man, that's the illusion. That's the illusion that keeps nature doing its dance. You can open the door and get out. That's exactly the way it is, exactly the way it is. And remember, this has nothing to do with what you do in the external world. Don't get into funny places about it's not socially responsible. Because whoever it is that's sitting here is sitting here doing his thing. Got here on time? He's a rent-a-robot. I move him from place to place. He's like Charlie McCarthy going. I watch with awe as this terrible beauty of nature goes down. All of it, all of it. Life, death, birth, love, hate, all the polarity. You know what's another identity with energy and consciousness is the word love. An exact identity. In fact, when you get to the top of the pyramid, they all become one. That's what Plato's pure idea is. That's that place back up there. Love, energy, consciousness, truth, beauty, wisdom, it all becomes one at that place. Mehababa says, very beautiful, St. Familia, love has to spring spontaneously from within and it is in no way amenable to any form of inner or outer force. Love and coercion can never go together, but though love cannot be forced on anyone, it can be awakened in him through love itself. Love is essentially self-communicative, those who do not have it catch it from those who have it. True love is unconquerable and irresistible, and it goes on gathering power and spreading itself until eventually it transforms everyone whom it touches. Being is dying by loving is a true statement. That is a statement of bhakti yoga, the yoga of love, of devotion. If you ever have experienced being so in love with somebody that you are more concerned about their happiness than your own, you love yourself right out of your egocentricity. You understand bhakti yoga. Because the minute you turn that to loving in another person or in the universe, that which is universal rather than that which is finite, you don't love Mary because she's Mary, and you don't love Mary because she's got a beautiful bod. You love Mary because she's God. And you honor her and worship her, and you're making love to her as a form of worship, 
and everything else you do all day long in everything 24 hours a day is a form of worship of making the profane sacred. That's what it's all about. You want to be high, just change your consciousness around. You want it bad enough, you'll do it. It's work, but it's totally joyful work. Imagine, John, you've got to do is love everything. That's not bad. But you see, the funny thing is, it is not the verb love, because the verb love takes an object. Love who? If I love that thing in Mary, which is God, what is it that loves it? It's the thing in me, which is God, and that thing is one. In fact, the rule of the game, the statement I can also make is, if you know who you are and I know who I am, at this moment in this auditorium, there is only one of us. There is only one of us. And all these manifestations. And here I am. All of us. Here we are. Here I am. So when you are loving, and the game again, you see, is you've got to love yourself so much that you can be love, because it's, this, it's the sea of love. When you say, I am in love, it's like being in a tub. Come on into love. It's an extraordinary place you get. Because once you get beyond, once you see your personality even, is merely like the fenders on the Chevrolet Corvair. You understand that? All of the melodrama of the neurosis and, oh, such a problem. Wow. I mean, then mental health work is like, is like a fender repair. Because that isn't who we are anyway. Why don't we just get on with it? Everybody I meet now is the same person. How do you like that? We're all us, and here we are again. You want to get caught in your melodrama groovy. But I'm going to keep centering so I don't get caught in it with you. I will love you and honor you and feel great compassion for your melodrama, but no matter how melodramatic it is, I'm not going to go on the trip this time. I'm not even going to go on my own trip. I'm not even interested in this melodrama. Because it's just another shock. It's just another drama. I've seen Peyton Place till it's coming out of my ears. Will he graduate? Will he come off drugs? Shall I give up my virginity? Will I find a great thing in research? Will he become enlightened? What should I eat for breakfast? Should I cut my hair or let it grow? Wow, it's so heavy. Oh, God. I mean, we do it all, but let's not get caught in it. Come on now. Come on now, let's be here. You never have to miss a step. You don't have to go to the Himalayas. You don't have to drop out. You don't have to do anything. You just have to become conscious. It's as simple as that. Just get on with it. Just find a center. Until you have a center, you're just a mechanical response mechanism. You come into this class, you sit down, somebody draws a board, think this, you think that. Fifty minutes, the bell rings, you go out, you know, turn left in the maze, now eat, now. Well, I'll make a choice. I'll have to decide whether I'm going to pursue your path or not. Come on now. More melodrama. 
There's no choices. There's no choices at all. You're living in a totally deterministic system. Karma is, even the illusion of choice is just illusion. There's only freedom when you're a fully conscious being. You're not free. Choices are only apparent choices. It's all worked out. I mean, I've been hanging out with this cat in the Himalayas who knows the future. He can say, on next Tuesday, this is going to happen. How can he say that if there are any accidents in the universe? So let me say this. Let me give you one more. There are no accidents in the universe. No accident can possibly happen because any plan you can think of about how it all works, there's a plan behind that one, too. And if you get really cool and Egyptian, see, you'll dig that plan. And then there's another one. Just to lay a few more little things for you to play with in the ride home. Rational man is not the highest being on the evolutionary ladder at this moment. So you can rest easy. And the next level of being is neither benevolent nor malevolent. So you don't have to get your ray gun to beat him off when you meet him on Mars. The physical universe as we know it is a more trivial part of the cosmos. Desire creates your universe. It is only your desire that is keeping you receiving only that information which keeps you in the illusion that there is a reality which is a physical reality. Just as if we had a television set up here and we tune it to channel 7, as far as that television is concerned, there is only channel 7. Channel 9 doesn't even exist for the now you tune it to channel 9, and suddenly channel 9 only exists for the television set, and 7 doesn't exist. What happened to 7? It doesn't exist. In this room at this moment, there's channel 7 and there's 9, or whatever those channels are in Vancouver. But we're not receiving them because our receivers are tuned in a certain way. Because one of the qualities of the fact that you are in a human birth at this point means that your receiver was tuned a certain way. It was preset. It's preset. But it's not preset in a final way. You can adjust it. And you, I, I can sit with my guru brother, who's the guy from Laguna Beach, and he is sitting in the room right next to me, and he's talking to a guy in front of him that I don't even see. Well, one of us has lost his marbles, man. Who's crazy, him or me? I mean, there's a cat he's talking to, and the, I don't even see the guy. It's like he's tuned to channel 9, I'm tuned to channel 7. The final place one gets to is that one has a dial that is completely flexible and you can bring in all levels at all times and you see how it is at every level all the time. Because what in fact is going on is you are living at a certain vibrational rate and that's what makes it all seem real to you. And you change that vibrational rate just a tiny bit and all this is gone and something else is here. All this is gone. 
Somebody says to me, well, what would happen if everybody became enlightened? Well, this would all not exist because this all exists because of our desire. See how that works? But don't get scared because, you know, if you want it, you'll keep it. <laughs> That's the way it works. <sighs> no rush. We've got eternity. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. I just want you to appreciate that it turns out that the Bible is real. It's not a metaphor. It's not a, a groovy story to teach us something. It does, and it is, of course. But it's real. I mean, guys really do open the, the Red Sea and wither the fig trees. And when Christ says... Had ye but faith, you could move mountains. That's true. It's all connected with vibrational rates. And once you understand the whole secret of mantra and sound and moving with different sounds and visions and visual fields and mandalas and so on, you begin to see it all falls into place and that there are just these different levels of vibrational rates. And the first level out is what's called heaven and hell in the Christian world. That's one level out. There's six more after that. But Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, if you want to go to heaven, groovy, go to heaven. It's another desire place. You want to be Lord of the Wind? Great, we'll make you Lord of the Wind. How long? 10,000 years? Sure. Now you're done with that one? Now what? Now I want to know how it all is. Groovy, we'll take you to the causal plane. Now you see how it all is? Now what? It's no rush. You've got to live out all your desires. Don't rush. It's all going to happen. It's a much bigger trip than you thought it might have been, you know. And no matter how big you get it, it's bigger than that one, too. The way the, the Hindu system, which is, takes care of every bit of data that I ever collected in seven years of taking LSD and all the other drugs and talking to all the people who I talked to, the thousands of them, who laid their stories upon me, and then the experience with these beings in India, I suddenly... I see now about these planes of vibration or these planes of reality and see that there is a physical plane and then there is what's called an astral plane and then there is what we can call a causal plane. And then behind that is a place where it all is like, um, like um, what's called negative energy or negative, you know, antimatter, antimatter, the void, nirvana. Behind even antimatter, perhaps. And the first place that you come into from the void into form is the yin yang, and it's the the what's called the Godhead. It's the first consciousness. It's the highest place in the causal plane, which is the world of pure idea, and that's the mind out of which it all comes, and that's the one we really mean when we talk about God. And finally, you are that mind, you are that consciousness. And when you begin to see how your desire is creating a universe anyway, you see you already are. That's all that's going on at every level. Desire is creating the universe. At one point I asked my teacher what LSD was, and he took about two weeks, and then he wrote back on his slate, and he said, LSD is like a Christ in America, which is awakening the young folk in Kali Yuga. America is a most materialistic country, therefore God has shown his avatar in a form of LSD, a material. 
They wanted a material for approaching God, and they got it in the form of LSD. A man who has not tasted things thinking as true, how he will get the feeling of those things? In other words, psychedelics show a possibility, but beyond that, you still have a lot of stuff to do. Once you've seen the possibility, you can go back and back and back to see the possibility, but that's just going back to see the possibility. Because finally, you've got to get on with it. You've got to get your scene like in order. You know what it means. Out of time, no subject object. It's pretty straight. Get your body straight. Calm your mind down. Just get on with it. You know where it is. Do it. But you can't do it just because you think you ought to do it. You've got to do it because there's nothing else to do. The only reason I do what I do is because there's nothing else to do. Because once you've seen how it is, you might as well get on with it. What else am I going to do? I think I'll make believe there is no such thing. I think I'll go to a cocktail party. Yeah. Oh, this one again. Boy, this is a hard one. Isn't this interesting? No. How can I say it so it's scary enough to show you how real it is? I can say, I love every human being I meet as much as I've ever loved anybody in my life, and I am completely indifferent as to whether I ever see them again. I can say that when I am alone, it is quite sufficient. And when I am with somebody else, it makes no difference. How about that one? How about the one that nothing I can receive in through my senses is as high as what goes on inside? That's an interesting one. These are fierce ones, aren't they? Does becoming, working towards enlightenment change your life? Of course it changes your life. It doesn't, interestingly enough, change your sense of social responsibility, but the issue of social responsibility is a very, very subtle issue because, in fact, a mechanical man cannot be very socially responsible anyway because he hasn't the least idea of what the effects of his acts are. I mean, a guy that goes charging angrily down the street screaming for peace is sending out a set of vibrations that are, in effect, creating war. Poor cat, he doesn't even know that. He's so busy doing his thing. He's so busy in his melodrama. It's us against them. I've seen enough Westerns. You know. Here we are. Let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. It's very heavy. Tatha Upanishads say, Not many hear of him, and of those not many reach him. Wonderful is he who can teach about him, and wise is he who can be taught. Wonderful is he who knows him when taught. The last thing I will end with this evening is a poem from, that was found on a 16th century Norman crucifix. I am the great sun but you do not see me. I am your husband, but you turn away. 
I am the captive, but you do not free me. I am the captain, you will not obey. I am the truth, but you will not believe me. I am that city where you will not stay. I am your wife, your child, but you will leave me. I am that God to whom you will not pray. I am your counsel, but you do not hear me. I am your lover, but you will betray. I am your life, but if you will not name me, seal up your soul with tears and never blame me. In India, when people meet and they say something which is a reminder of how it is, most of them have forgotten its meaning. They say namaste, namaste, or namaskar, namaste, which means I honor the light within you. I honor that which is the Atman, or the light or God within you. So let me say to all of us, namaste. Namaste.